Amen. Well, good morning, OCC. How you doing today? And it is great to be with you as always and great to have those of you who are joining us online. We're grateful that you've chosen to tune into us today. In this past week, my wife and I had the privilege to gather with several other pastors at, a, it's not really a conference, we call it an exchange where we're meeting and just exchanging ideas and exchanging encouragement. And I tell you, church, um, out of the hundred pastors that were there, All of them in churches like ours in our movement are seeing God do some awesome things just like what we've been seeing here. God is on the move. You know, there's lots of areas that we would look at, but one of the things that they did, they asked, how many of you saw record numbers of baptisms in the last year? And almost every hand went up. And that's a great thing, church. Like God is moving. People are hungry for God. We're seeing a movement of that. And so it was a blessing. It was such a beautiful thing to gather with other pastors and have the encouragement with them. Now, part of the week for us, my wife and I were asked to sit on a marriage panel. And it was funny. At first, I was like, well, we're kind of young to be on a marriage panel. And then I realized I have less hair and what little I have has gone gray. And we've been at this marriage thing for two and a half decades. I'm like, man... We're not as young as I like to pretend I am. <laughs> so I told Jen that we'd been invited to be on the panel. Now, if you know me, I don't have a problem getting in front of a crowd and, and talking on a mic. But my wife, she is a super servant, but she is a behind-the-scenes person. She's not real excited to be on a microphone in front of a crowd very often. But when I told her we'd been invited to sit on a marriage panel with a handful of other couples, she said, sure. And I was like, wow, that's great. Like, kind of surprised by how quickly she said it. But then she quickly followed it up with this. She said, but you know, we'll probably have a fight the night before. (laughs) And she wasn't entirely wrong. (laughs) We just didn't wait till the night before. In fact, the day that I mentioned that to her, I said, well, they sent me the few questions they're going to ask us. So we went for a walk. We began talking about those questions. And that's when we had the disagreement. I thought, oh, great. Well, we're going to fight all week or we're just going to get it out of the way now. Well, we did have a disagreement and it didn't last long and it wasn't too brutal. And later, even in that evening, we were able to laugh about it and think, well, man, isn't that just the way it goes? We get invited to sit on a panel to help encourage other pastors and their spouses how to have a strong marriage. And we're having a fight about that. Like, that's a beautiful thing. But isn't that how it is with peace? Like, we want peace and harmony in our homes, but peace is elusive, peace evades us, and any of you who drive to church with another human in the car have probably experienced the elusiveness of peace at times, right? How many of you have ever been on the way to church and you get into an argument in the car? How many of you had that happen this morning? I'm just kidding. Don't answer if it happened this morning. And don't look at the person next to you because it's just going to make it worse, right? But we know what happens. Like, you're you're battling it out, and you pull up in the church parking lot, and you're at it, and you get out of the car like, praise Jesus, it's a beautiful day, right? Like, you pretend that it's all good, right? But that's how it goes. We, we have this peace that we desire, but it eludes us, and then we pretend that we have it. Well, Jesus said some pretty strong things about peace in the Sermon on the Mount. And we've been looking at the things Jesus said at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of the preamble to his sermon. It's called the Beatitudes, and it's several blessing statements. And in this series called The Blessed Life, we've been examining those blessed statements. And one of them is this. Jesus speaks to us on how to find peace. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now, notice the word Jesus used, not peace 
hopers, peace wanters, peace seekers, peace lovers, but peace makers. Peace is not natural. Peace is not something you find and you happen upon. It's not like you're digging for rare precious metals and you come across it and you're like, oh yeah, we found peace. It's not like you stumble upon it. You actually have to make it. You have to put in effort and energy to have peace. And because of that, when it comes to peace and how we deal with peace, all of us fit into one of three categories. And I would venture to say that most of us float between some of these categories pretty often. But we're either going to be a peace breaker, which I would also say is a peace taker. They steal peace from other people. But you're going to be a peace breaker, a peace faker, or a peace maker. Now, the peace breakers, we all know these kinds of people. These are the people who actually pursue conflict. These are the people that when the family has gathered for Thanksgiving dinner, they're the ones to initiate conversation on politics at the table, right? These are the ones who know that somebody disagrees with them, and they go right for the juggler, and they want to talk about the disagreement. They want to bring up the issues. They want to hash it out. These are the people who like to make trouble, and they like to stir the pot, and they like to create some conflict. These are people who want to dominate the conversation and they want to show off how smart they are and they want to belittle other people and they want to puff the chest. But not every peace breaker is always ill-intentioned. In fact, sometimes peace breaking happens because people have very good intentions. Sometimes You have somebody who sees something wrong. They see a problem. They see an evil in the world. They see injustice. And they want to right the wrong. They want to do something about it. So they want to fix that issue. And that's a good thing. But the way they handle it is in a bad way. Sometimes they come out with guns blazing and shots fired. They go after the person instead of going after the problem. They they go after it with abrasiveness. And dealing with other people in abrasive ways rarely, if ever, creates peace right? So they have the right desire to fix the problem, but they create problems in how they're trying to do it. The arsenal of most peace breakers includes things like arguing and yelling and anger and belittling and overpowering and dominating and trying to shut down the other person. And never do those things create peace. While that might stop the bad behavior for a moment, It usually creates other bad situations. It just creates other conflict, bitterness, and hurt, woundedness, anger, judgment, fear. You know, if we were to read through the entirety of the New Testament, we would uncover more than 50 statements that have the phrase one another in them. God gives us more than 50 one another statements of how we are to do life with one another. And what we would see through many of those statements, we could sum up with this phrase, that you can't be at peace with God if you're at war with his children. If our one anothering is broken, then we have a broken relationship with God. You can't be good with God if you're treating his people poorly, treating his people badly. And we know that there are those people who would want to justify it and they would want to stand above that. They say, well, no, no, blessed are you when relationships are broken and abandoned and when you win the argument, but you lose the friendship. Blessed are you when you're all alone because you determined what was right and you stood your ground and you alienated everyone else. Not much of a blessing, is it? 
the pot stirrers and troublemakers are not blessed. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus says, not the peace breakers. Now, we all know people who are peace breakers, but I think more of the time, more of us, most of us would fall into the category of peace fakers. We, we would be the peace fakers. Now, I'll be honest with you, I'm kind of preaching to myself today and just letting y'all listen in on this. <laughs> so my natural tendency is to be a peace faker. That, that's, that's how I'm wired up. There's this idea in the back of my brain that if we can just laugh about things when conflict happens, if we can just pretend it never happened, if we can get everybody in the room smiling and just push that conflict to the side, then eventually it'll go away and everything will be fine. Anybody else with me? Anyone else hate conflict? Anyone else want to avoid conflict? Raise your hands high if you're a conflict. The rest of you are lying because your hands aren't up. You're just afraid it's going to create conflict with somebody if you raise your hand, right? Like most people in my interaction and in the pastoral counseling I've done, most people want to avoid conflict. We don't really love conflict. But the problem is we want to experience peace without the necessary effort required to make peace. We, we want to experience peace without making peace. But we know, we know that avoidance is no good. Well, avoiding the issue, all that does is just push the issue down the road. And then what do we do? Well, we add another issue to it. We push that down the road. We just keep pushing all these issues It's like we've got a closet for the issues. It's kind of like when my son cleans his room and he does it in a hurry. And then my wife will go up to hang some clothes in his closet. She opens the door and she's buried by a flood of things that just come falling out of the closet. That's kind of what a lot of people do with their conflict. They just shove it away and they close the door. But eventually there's too much and it just all comes falling out. When we just push things down the road and we avoid the issues, eventually all those issues add up and we hit our threshold. And when we hit our threshold, it boils over and we blow up and that causes a big mess up. And there's such a mess that it's really hard to clean up. So we know that avoidance really doesn't work. And what we know is that peace fakers eventually become peace breakers. When we just keep pushing it all under the surface, eventually there's too much there. And we blow up. So most peace fakers at some point become peace breakers. And we know that appeasement does not work. Just giving in to the other person, letting them bully us, or pretending that there really aren't any issues, eventually we just can't handle it anymore. You know, some people, they want to avoid the issue. They want to avoid the person. And so they seek peace in other ways. They they convince themselves that they can find peace in the bottom of a bottle or in a big bank account or in that flashy boat on the lake or in a batch of chocolate chip cookies. I really like chocolate chip cookies. I'm just going to be honest. Maybe it's in binging on a favorite show. You ever try to find your peace there? You know you can't find it. You know that that's a false peace. You know that that only makes you feel good for the moment, but after that moment, you feel even worse because you still have no peace, and now you have added regret of the other things. We're just going pretending 
But that's really not peace. No, peace requires tough conversations. Peace requires getting to the heart of the issue and resolving the conflict. And this means that we won't find peace by just faking it. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said. Not the peace breakers. Not the peace fakers. But the peacemakers. And the emphasis there is on making peace. It's not active. Or sorry, it's not passive. It is active. It requires energy. It requires effort. It's something that has to be built and constructed. That peace is something we have to put together in our relationships. This is why the author of Hebrews tells us, next slide, that we have to work at living in peace with whom? Say it with me. Everyone. Does that leave anyone out of the picture? No. If we're going to be at peace, we actually have to pursue peace with everyone, even those people, even the guy who's the jerk neighbor, even the person who has wronged you at work, even that family member who did you wrong a long time ago. Now, we can't force peace upon it, but we've got to work at living in peace with everyone. And he goes on to say, work at living a holy life. For those who are not holy will not see the Lord. That's a It's a powerful statement. And what we see here is that our holiness with God is directly tied to being at peace with other people, with our willingness to be at peace anyway. So if you are not pursuing peace, you're not pursuing holiness. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. Shalom. That's the word the ancient Israelites used. That's the word in the Old Testament for peace, shalom. And shalom, I think, captures a a bigger picture. It captures the fullness of this peace concept that we're getting at, maybe better than how we understand it in English. Because peace was a, a word they would speak to one another upon greeting one another. It's a word they would speak to one another as they departed from one another. They would speak peace to one another. They would speak peace over one another. And peace in that idea of shalom was more than just the mere absence of conflict. It was the presence of well-being. It was to pursue the well-being of the other person, even if you disagree with them. I want to pursue your well-being, even if I disagree with you. That's shalom. That's biblical peace. It's to pursue the well-being of another person. It's to work for their well-being. It's to work for a right relationship with that person and for that person. And that means that while peacemaking is kind and merciful and gracious, it is not passive. It never can be passive. And that's where the tension comes in because most of us, we want peace. But the problem is the peacemaking process doesn't feel very peaceful. In the process of making peace, we feel like it's, there is no peace. It's, it's tough. And the reason is because peacemaking demands that we move into conflict. Peacemaking demands that we lean into this conflict thing that we can't just avoid it. We can't pretend. We can't break it. We've got to move into it and lean into it to resolve the issue. And there are right ways to do this, but most of us, we've not been trained in the right way. It doesn't come natural to us. So most of us don't do it the right way. We do it the opposite of that. And what's the opposite of doing it right? What's the opposite of doing it right? There you go. Yeah, doing it left. 
One of you actually got it. It's to do it left. You're correct. If we do it left, we've done it wrong. But too often, this is the way people handle conflict. If you've left someone out of the conversation, you're not doing it right. If you're talking about someone rather than to them, that's not okay. The word the, the Bible uses for that is gossip, slander, division. And too often, too many people will not go to the person, but they'll talk about that person to many other people. And of all the language that God hates, the language that God hates most is this, gossip and slander and division. You know, I think it's funny that oftentimes when somebody is newer to church, they'll say, well, I gotta clean up my language. I, I find it humorous at times when I'm talking to certain people, and there are certain professions that are known for using a little more colorful language, words that often only have four letters and put some people, uh, you know. And and when somebody finds out what profession I'm in, they tend to stop using some of those four-letter words around me. And I'm like, it doesn't bother me as much as you might think. And I'm not the judge of all that. But I think it's interesting that oftentimes we have this idea that, that in church we got to clean up our language. But of all the language we need to clean up, those four-letter words are not prime at the top of the list. What falls at the top of the list would be gossip and slander and division. Because you see, that language is the most destructive language. That is the grossest and most grotesque language. That's the most dangerous language. That is the foulest language of it all. That if there's language God hates, it's language that would destroy and devour another person. That's the language that we've got to clean up, church. All of us. So if we've left them out of the conversation, we've done it wrong. If we've left respect and kindness at the door... We're doing it wrong. If we have forgotten that another person is a person who is made in the image of God, valued by God, who God desires to have a relationship with, then we've missed it. If we're just trying to win an argument, we've missed it. Because peacemaking is not about attacking a person. It's not about making war with somebody. It's not about picking a fight. It's about resolving the conflict. It's about reconciling with the other person. Helping them reconcile with God and make peace with God and making peace and restoring the relationship we have with them. And so peacemaking means we go to the person and we see them as, as a valued person and we don't seek to just pick a fight and win the argument. No, we acknowledge that there's a problem that exists externally to both of us. So we link up with the other person to resolve the problem. And that's a drastically different way of doing it. So if we've left kindness and respect at the door, we've done it wrong. And I'll tell you, the Holy Spirit convicted me this week. That whole thing about being at peace with everyone. That includes the big name people, right? Sometimes it's easy to dehumanize somebody we don't know who's a famous person. Maybe a politician or somebody else in the headlines. Easy to talk about them. And where I was convicted this week was that if... If my conversation about those people to other people outweighs my conversation to God about that person's salvation, I'm wading pretty deep into sin. 
Church, may our needs be calloused from praying for those people we disagree with more than our speech is filled with why we disagree with them. May we truly be peacemakers. If we have just left the issue alone, we've done it wrong. Contrary to the old saying, time does not heal all wounds. Years ago, when Jen and I were still much younger and we were living in a small apartment, I had gone mountain biking with some of my friends. There are places in Illinois that are actually hilly. And so I had found one of those places we went, we were riding, and, and partway through the day, I wrecked my bike, and my foot stayed in the clip uh, when I needed it to come out, and I geared myself. So my gears shredded part of my calf. And uh, I'll spare you all the gory details, but it hurt, and I was covered in grease and mud and all kinds of other things and blood, and I didn't have any bandages with me, so I took off one of my extra shirts, I wrapped it around, I packed a little mud on to stop the bleeding, and then we finished the ride, because that was the only way to get back to the car, and then on the way home, I was feeling a little depleted, so we stopped for lunch on the way back, so I finally get home, and I walk in, and I, I told Jen, I said, hey, listen, uh, I just need three things from you real quick, two bandages and the bottle of rubbing alcohol. She said, okay. So Jen comes, hands the bandages, I douse one with rubbing alcohol. She says, what are you doing with the other? And I bit it, I untied that shirt, and I just started scrubbing. And it hurt <laughs> bad. <laughs> but I knew, right? Because I've had enough other times in my life where I had just, like, oh, it'll heal, it'll be fine. And I've got some weird scars from some of those moments. And I had some infection that had happened in other times from some of those moments. I knew you got to clean the wound. And you got to deal with it sooner rather than later. And I knew that the discomfort in that moment would be far better than just leaving it alone and finding much worse discomfort down the road. So I cleaned it and I scrubbed it and I put on the Neosporin and I bandaged it and it healed pretty quickly and mostly fully. But too many of us have just left that conflict issue alone, that, that wound with the other person, thinking it'll get fine on its own when really all that happens is it festers and it gets infected. It becomes like a cancer to our soul. It kills us. It kills the relationship. Leaving it alone is not the right way to handle it. You know, a lot of times what we see is people have just left the relationship. If you do it left by having left the relationship, and those are some of the hardest that I've witnessed. Church, can I be really just transparent with you for a moment? That in my line of work, um, one of the things that grieves me the most is to meet people who have transferred to our church from another church because they've just left instead of resolving things. The leadership of this church desires to grow this church by introducing people to Jesus, not just by shifting the sheep from one flock to another. Like if you've transferred here, we love you. We're glad you're here. We, we hope you stay. But if you left another place poorly, I'm going to ask that you find a way to reconcile that. You don't have to go back, but you do need to reconcile. If you've left relationships in your life, you need to reconcile them. 
Too many times, instead of actually dealing with the conflict and making peace, people avoid it and they just walk away. And I've seen that happen in every church I've ever been part of. From the time that I was in a tender as a young high school kid to my days now as a lead minister. And it's grieved me every time. God would not desire that we just leave the relationship, but that we would reconcile and restore relationship with one another. Doesn't mean that we always need to stay, but it does mean we need to do what's in our power to work at living in peace. So if you're doing it left, you're doing it wrong. So my encouragement is to do it right, because you'll never go wrong by doing it right. And doing it right, well, this is what doing it right looks like. To do it right means you go to the right person. You don't just talk about that person, you actually go talk to that person. And if you're going to talk about the person, you talk to God about that person first and most. And then you go to them. And if you're unsure how to resolve the conflict, then you go to a trusted other. And you ask them, you say, man, I've got this disagreement. We might need someone to mediate. I need some help figuring out how to have this conversation. But you limit that circle so that you can honor the other person. To do it right means you go to that person at the right time. It means that you give yourself some time to cool off, but you don't let it wait too long. You know, doing it sooner is always better than doing it later. But I'll also say this, doing it later is always better than doing it never. And so you go at the right time. And you go at the right time to make sure that that maybe you've calendared it and you've put it on the schedule so that they won't be distracted, so they know that you're having a conversation, so that you can actually honor the other person by, by saying, hey, we need to have this conversation. When is a good time for you that we can have this so that we can both fully engage? And I'll just let you know, A terrible time to have a a challenging conversation with any of our pastoral staff is on a Sunday morning (laughs) because there are always so many things going on and so many people who need pastoring, prayers that need prayed and things that are happening behind the scenes that if you have an issue and it's not an immediate issue, can you contact us and we'll get it on the calendar because I want to hear what you have to say and I want to honor you and I want to be able to give you my full undivided attention And often I just am not able to do that. I'm not in the right headspace to do that on a Sunday morning. So because I love you, I'm going to ask you to let's schedule that time another time if we need to talk about something. And make sure you're going to the right person about those things. Well, another way to do it right is to do it in the right place. If you're a married couple and you've got a disagreement with your spouse, the right place is never typically in front of the kids. Unless you are confessing and apologizing. But if you're confronting, you do that behind closed doors. If you've got to deal with something with one of your kids, rarely is it right that you're doing that in front of the other children or in front of your kids' friends or out in public where your child might feel humiliated. Rarely is it ever good if you're dealing with this issue with a coworker that you're doing it in the break room where other people see. I, I recommend getting alone or with just a couple other people who can help you navigate a difficult conversation. But you honor the other person by going to the right place. And always, the thing that brings all this together is to do it with the right attitude, to do it with humility, setting your pride aside, putting your pride in the ground, seeking to restore the relationship, not just to win the argument or to dominate the other person. That's not doing it right. But seeking to lovingly, graciously, mercifully restore relationship with the other person. The right attitude makes all the difference. Now, friends, I wish I could tell you that I operate here all the time. 
Then all you have to do is ask my family and our church staff. They'll tell you I don't. <laughs> I wish, but I don't. But I'm getting better at it, and I lean into this, and I am grateful for those who will remind me of this when I don't honor this. But this is something that we should all operate by all the time in every relationship. So I want to offer you a few other things that I've learned along the way that I'm still learning to do right. And one of those is I've learned it's way better to ask than accuse. Oftentimes when we accuse, we, we're making the assumption that we know everything that's going on, that we have all the facts and all the details, and we know what's going on under the hood for the other person, and rarely do we ever have that. If we make the accusation, we usually accuse based on motives, not just behavior. And while we can assess behavior, we don't really know the motives. So we're far better to ask questions. When Jen and I were first married, I was the one who often broke this rule. I was the one who would often be more sensitive and get hurt. But as I began asking questions after things and sharing my hurt, I'd say, hey, when you said this, that, that felt disrespectful to me. Is this what you intended? And she'd say, I didn't even realize I had said that. No, I would never mean to disrespect you like that. Oh. Or, hey, sweetie, when this happened... And is this what you did? No, I didn't intend it. In fact, that's not even how I said it or what I said. You only heard part of that. Oh, what I found, the more I asked questions, the more I realized my wife really does love me. <laughs> she really is for me. And I've learned throughout the years, if my wife has a beef with me, I won't have to guess about it. She will make it very clear behind closed doors. She'll say, sweetie, we got to get square. And she's usually right. So I don't have to guess. I don't have to wonder if there's an issue. So if I've heard something that seems out of character, it's usually that I've misinterpreted the situation. But we're always better when we ask instead of just accuse. And I've learned that it's always better if we're going to assume that we would assume the best about the other person. Because when we assume the worst, well, we just got a lot of hee-haw and donkeys around, if you know what I mean. And so when we assume the best about the other person then we might discover that they really did have good intentions. We might discover that that's really maybe we've misinterpreted something. When we assume the best, we set ourselves up for a much better conversation. And in doing so, we may still discover ill intent, but then we can resolve it with love and grace and mercy and kindness. Last thing I'll share with you on this is that we need to predetermine our response. Times will happen when other people have wronged us, when they have broken peace. There are going to be times when we are the peace breakers. And determining ahead of time how we respond in those moments will make all the difference when those moments happen. Because they happen pretty often. I have three children. My two oldest are girls. They've both learned how to drive. I'm now on the front side of teaching my son how to drive. It's a radically different experience to teach a young man how to drive than it is a young I'm just going to say. Um, slightly more terrifying, though I once was a young man learning how to drive, so I think that's why my wife was like, you take the boy. <laughs> but in doing so, I've, and I did this with our girls, I, I want to put them in as many different and difficult situations as possible. Oh, it's snowing, let's drive. Oh, it's raining really bad, let's go for a drive. Oh, let's find some construction, like we have to search hard to find construction around the city. Let's go drive with some of the worst drivers on the planet in the craziest zone we can that might be poorly marked. Let's go for a drive. And Jen's like, I'm going to stay home and pray, right? But I do this 
all the time because I want to put my kids in situations that force them to think. Look down the road. Look behind you. Look around. Look what's coming. Pay attention to the person on the on-ramp, the person on the off-ramp. Pay attention to the yield. Pay attention to this and that. To get them thinking about the things going around them. Hey, there's a person up the road. They're driving pretty crazy. What do you think might happen? Great. Let's slow down when they wreck. That way you can drive around it. You don't have to be in the accident. Maybe we get around them and we leave them behind us. Hey, there's a person flying up behind you. Maybe hit your flashers to alert them that maybe you're not going to 190 miles an hour in this 30 mile an hour zone, right? Let's pay attention to these things. If you're going to be on ice and you start to slide, don't slam on the brakes. It'll make it worse. If you're skidding, turn into the skid. If you run off the road just a little bit, if you're on the shoulder, which has anyone noticed that some of our roads just don't have much of a shoulder? They have like a cliff, right? There's just not much of a shoulder sometimes. But if you're on the shoulder, don't just Yank the car back on real quick and overcorrect. That creates much more damage, much more problems. We tend to overcorrect and that creates more of a bad situation. In my experience working with other couples and other families over the years doing some pastoral counseling, I've found that oftentimes in our relationships, we tend to run off the road onto the shoulder. And maybe we feel like we got nudged off there, like somebody has run us off the road. But the tendency is when we grab the wheel and we overcorrect and we jerk that wheel and we come back. And when we do that, we create way more damage. If you are the one who jerks the wheel, then maybe you have some ownership as a jerk also in the situation, right? We've all been there a time or two. Friend, you may do everything right. You may employ all these tactics and more. And things may still feel very, very wrong. That's why Paul implores us when he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these words to the church at Rome. And they're just as relevant for us as they were for them. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Do all that you can. As far as it depends on you. Be at peace with everyone else. When it comes to others, you can't force them to have peace. You can't force them to make peace with you. You can offer and you can do all that you can. And I encourage you, do all that you can so you can sleep well with yourself at night. But there are some people who refuse peace. There are some who swim in chaos, who thrive in conflict. There are some who are perpetual peace breakers. And while I think that our culture uses the word toxic a little too much, I do think it aptly applies here that there are some people who are just toxic. And sometimes after we've pursued peace, we do need to distance ourselves safely from them. Leaving the door open for reconciliation, but creating boundaries that protect us. Now, I'll say having wrong things done to you is never an excuse to do wrong things in return. In fact, one of the best questions we could ever ask ourselves is this. How am I contributing to the behavior that I don't like? How have I contributed to the situation, to the conflict? How have I helped break the peace? And if we will begin there, It works wonders when we have a conversation with somebody else. And we're not just saying this is all the things you've done. But we own our part. We own that we misinterpreted. Or our pride got in the way. Or we said something that we now regret. That we did not extend forgiveness when we should have. When we ask that question of ourselves. We open ourselves up 
to find peace and to make peace with others much more easily. And I'm going to extend some encouragement to some of you. Some of you, you feel like you're the perpetual victim, that things are always broken around you. It's always the other people, those people and those people and those people. And guess what? If it's always the other person, if the common thread is always everybody else and never you, it's a good chance you have much more ownership than what you currently realize or admit. And so the place to begin making peace is in the mirror. To begin making peace with yourself because the message of peace is the message of the gospel. That the message of peace is not just the mere absence of conflict or the presence of the well-being of another. It is the very presence of God in our lives. If you want to become a peacemaker, it starts by making peace first with God. See, peacemakers know that true peace is only found in Jesus, the Prince of Peace. So if you have broken peace in your marriage, seek Jesus. If you have broken peace in your home, seek Jesus. If you have broken peace in your friend circle or at work or at school or with the other kids on the team, seek Jesus. If you have broken peace in your soul, seek Jesus. Because that's the only place you will find peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called children of God. See here, Jesus is highlighting what he's been getting at throughout all the blessing statements up to this one. That the the way that his kingdom children will live is directly at odds with every other kingdom in the world. He says, you want to be a child of God? Well, then you begin by being poor in spirit and mourning over your sin and pursuing meekness. You continue by thirsting and hungering for righteousness. By demonstrating mercy to other people. By pursuing a purity of heart in your pursuit of God. And you got to make peace, not war, with one another. For blessed are the peacemakers. For they will be called children of God. I love that it says they will be called. Not that they'll call themselves children of God. But other people will see it. My kids, for good or bad, they resemble their mom and their dad. They're much more blessed to resemble their mama than their dad. Sorry, kids, but this is what you got. This is the DNA you're stuck with. But they resemble us. And the more they grow, the more they have some of our mannerisms. They even sometimes talk like us and walk like us and do things similar to us. That's the way it is with children of God. We get his DNA in us. We begin to reflect the Father. There's a family resemblance. And I wonder, friends, do we look like our dad? Do we look like our heavenly Father? See, God's children are marked by shalom. It's the family trait that you just can't deny. Our lives should be marked by peace. See, peacemakers have experienced peace with God. And because of that, they seek to bring peace to everyone else, to help others make peace with God and to help others make peace with one another. So I just wonder what it might look like if we as God's children were to bring peace everywhere we go to everyone we know as much as it depends on us, to help them make peace with God, to to be peacemakers and peace bringers to people who are drowning in anxiety and chaos, who are drowning in fear and division When our world seems at odds with everything, 
people who are drowning in loneliness. If we were to bring peace and make peace in their lives, to help them find peace with God and to find peace with one another. We, we wouldn't have to say we are children of God. They'll know. They'll see it in us. It'll be undeniable. You know, Jesus made peace between us and God. Jesus, the great peacemaker, the prince of peace, has invited us into the mission. When you came in today, you grabbed the communion elements, the cup and the bread. I encourage you, hold this in your hand, but don't open it yet. Don't open it yet. Those of you joining us online, you can grab your elements as well. In Colossians, we read this. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Christ's blood on the cross. Jesus did not shy away from the conflict. Jesus did not avoid the challenge. I don't know that we can fully comprehend what it is that the God of glory stepped out of heaven wrapped himself in flesh and lived sinlessly in this world and willingly and willfully stepped into the conflict where he was whipped again and again and again and again for our sins, where he experienced the pain of peacemaking as the thorns of the crown pierced his brow, as the nails hung him there on the cross. Our God was willing to enter into the conflict so that we, so that we could be at peace with God and with one another. He did not shy away from the mess, from the conflict, from the pain of peacemaking. But he willfully entered into it not just for his sake and his glory, but for you and for me. He reconciled and made peace between us and him. This includes us, you and me, because we once were far away from God. We were his enemies. We had separated from him by our evil thoughts, our actions, each one of us. But now he has reconciled us, you and me to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. And God's people said amen to that, right? What a beautiful truth we have. And as a result, he has brought us into his own presence and we are holy and blameless as we stand before him without a single fault. All of our sin wiped away by the blood our Christ shed for us. Friend, this cup and this bread is a reminder of the cost of peace. It's a symbol of the peace made between us and God and us and one another because of what Christ has done for us. This is a reminder that Jesus has made peace for us. But I want to remind us too that you can't be at peace with God if you're at war with one of his kids. And so if there is someone that you need to make peace with, 
and they follow Christ also. And maybe somebody in this room, it may be somebody sitting right next to you. Before you step into this, go make peace. Maybe pick up a second cup. Make it your peace offering. Make it your act of peace to forgive and ask forgiveness from one another because you have been forgiven first and most by God. And if you're at peace, then let this moment bring joy to your soul for what Christ has done for you. Let's pray. God, we thank you that though we are not deserving of peace and we are the ones who create the conflict and the mess and we are by our natural nature enemies of you at war with you because of our sin, you've reconciled us. You've made the relationship right because you have made peace by paying the penalty of our sin. You've forgiven us and you lead us from chaos and war to peace. God, if there are any here today who do not yet know peace with you, I pray that today would be the day they surrender to you to experience the peace you offer. And God, if there are any here who are not in peace with one another, may they reconcile. Give us the courage we need to be peacemakers. Give us the courage we need to go confront the issue, but give us the love and compassion we need to not harm the relationship in the other person. God, restore us. Holy Spirit, do your work in us. Give us the humility, the courage, and the compassion we need to be peacemakers. Oh God, we pray all this in the beautiful name of our Prince of Peace himself, Jesus. Amen.